This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. The Buck Sexton Show. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. I don't know if you know this, and I didn't know this, honestly. I just wanted to talk about chocolate. But today, December 16th, is officially Chocolate Covered Anything Day or National Chocolate Covered Anything Day. I didn't even know that was a thing, but apparently it's a thing. But we want to talk about chocolate, so the timing here is perfect. And to do that, we are joined by Chloe Roussel. She's the author of the book, The Chocolate Connoisseur for Everyone with a Passion for Chocolate. Chloe, thank you so much for giving us your time today. My pleasure. Uh, first, can we just start with a little bit of, I mean, I, I love chocolate. It's one of the things in life that, you know, that gives me pleasure and that I, uh, I can never give up and, and I'm so glad it exists. But tell me a bit about the history of chocolate, if you would. Well, uh, the history is quite long and I will try to summarize thousands of years in a couple of sentences. Um, So Mexicans say they invented the use, they were the first one to use cacao uh, as a consumption. That means uh, to cultivate the cacao tree, to uh, make something out of it. And it was a currency and it was also a drink for the elite. But the Ecuadorians say they were the first ones. It doesn't matter really. It was at least uh, 1,000 years before Jesus Christ that cacao was already cultivated and transformed into drink. And cacao was a drink until about 1850. It is only recently that cacao is something you put in the mouth as something solid. And originally, it was when it was in the drink form, they didn't add sugar to it, right? It was sort of bitter and chilly. I, I've read a little bit about this. What was, and it was used for uh, religious practices by the Aztecs, or is that just a, an urban legend? Absolutely, you're right. Um, it was mainly a drink f- with water, no milk. It was the Spanish uh, who introduced the sugar and the milk into the recipe because uh, without sugar, it was far too strong for them, too bitter. And the uh, cacao was uh, mixed with many different spices, very different from the ones sometimes people add to the chocolate today. And it was used as a drink, as a ritual to uh, venerate the gods uh, to, uh, for special days like sacrifice days. And they used uh, to add a, a pigment that grows still in Mexico and is still used in Mexico to color a sauce. Uh, it is achiote, which, is, which gives a red color to the hot chocolate, and so it looked like blood. And you said until 1850. What, what changed in 1850? Well, it's not like an accurate date, but around Right, but the, around then. Yeah, around the 1850, it was uh, what we call the Industrial Revolution. It affected many areas on the chocolate, too. And 1815, roughly, is around the moment where the first chocolate solid was 
uh, mixing sugar and cacao uh, as a solid food was created, and it was uh, created in the United Kingdom. And uh, then afterwards, the Industrial Revolution invented a series of machines that allowed to change the texture and the aromas of the chocolate to create the kind of chocolate bar we know today. What were some of the first big mass-produced, uh, you know, what were the names, you know, was, was sort of Nestle an original? What were the earliest mass-produced chocolates? Uh, were they, are, are any of the brands? Yes, uh, the, the most, uh, the, the biggest brands that have been around for, since we, we were born are usually the founders of these uh, industrial chocolate, like uh, Nestle, uh, Poulain in France, uh, Hershey in the United States, Lint, Lint invented a machine very important for the development of the aromas called the conch. And Nestle was a partnership between uh, a man who invented the milk powder and uh, a man who used to make chocolate because chocolate is mainly fat. It's a good fat, but it's fat and you cannot mix water with fat. So you needed to invent milk powder to be able to make milk chocolate. And so the cacao beans come from tropical climates uh, around the world, South America and Central America, famously, but uh, they can be grown in other places. Right? Uh, West Africa has been a big producer in recent years. Where, where else does it come from? It uh, it's, has to be grown in very specific climates, correct? Absolutely. Cacao needs all year long uh, heat and humidity. And therefore, uh, if you close your eyes and imagine the earth, you can draw a line, a belt around the equator line, about 20 degrees latitude north and south from the equator. And all the countries that are uh, over this belt that you draw as an imaginary belt around the world can grow cacao. So it started in what we call now Central and Latin America, but then it was moved in 1821 to Africa because the world needed most cacao. And afterwards, uh, it, and now it is uh, planted in Asia and in India. So all, all these regions are uh, possible for cacao. The main producers are uh, Ivory Coast and Ghana. It's impossible to know exactly which one uh, produces how much because there is a lot of black market, but, uh, illegal black market between both countries, but they represent in volume 70% of the world production. Unfortunately, it's not the best cacao in the world. Now, I'm somebody who feels like sometimes I have to sneak uh, sneak my chocolate because I, I feel like I'm doing something kind of naughty. Obviously, there's a caloric impact to eating chocolate, but there's some health benefits too, aren't there? Absolutely. Uh, but mainly, uh, they bring pleasure to you, and pleasure is part of the reasons we feel better, and we are more happy, and therefore more healthy. Uh, but it's true that the cocoa butter included in the chocolate bar, uh, it's a 50% of the weight of the cacao bean is a fat called cocoa butter, and this is as good for health as the olive oil. Uh, what is bad in chocolate is mainly the sugar. And uh, so we, it, for me, it's extremely, uh, I feel very uncomfortable when I read articles saying that chocolate is good for health because there is always this sugar inside that is not good for health, whatever angle you look at it. And milk chocolate is full of sugar, white chocolate even more. So we are talking about dark chocolate as being perhaps the best for health. And even more, the, the cocoa powder. If you take a tablespoon of cocoa powder every morning in hot water without sugar, without milk, and swallow it, it's absolutely not ple pleasant, but it's full of antioxidants. I rather eat chocolate for pleasure. 
I, I agree with you on that one. How can one differentiate? I mean, this is this reminds me of, of certainly the way people approach wine and the way people approach uh, cheese and, and other uh, other you know areas of, of cuisine, other food and drink, that there's a tremendous variety in them and there's also uh, quality variations in them. How do people differentiate between what, we, what you would consider or how can one differentiate between sort of the, the best and then the just sort of okay chocolate? Because people make a, quite a study of this. Absolutely. When uh, you have chocolate, people tasting chocolate, and I am part of it at the professional level, and the method of tasting is very close to uh, tasting coffee, tea, olive oil, etc., because you are looking for uh, acidity, bitterness, astringency, and also aromatic families, uh, intensity, complexity, and length of uh, end of mouth and duration of the pleasure or the experience. So the way you listen to the body is the same whatever products you are tasting, but the notes you find in chocolate are different from those you find in coffee, tea, etc. But for most people, uh, it is quite easy to um, see the difference between a bad quality chocolate and something that is more interesting, better quality. Uh, To summarize, uh, a mass market chocolate, because for me a mass market chocolate has so far never been really good. Um, mass market chocolate is, is uh, characterized by a very high uh, temperature roasting, which gives uh, almost a burnt taste to the cacao, or just the cacao and nothing else. And then you have very often artificial vanilla added. Whatever they call it, natural or not, it tastes like artificial vanilla. And when you swallow the chocolate, this is what is left over in your mouth, something a bit uh, burnt, spicy, cacao, like cacao powder, and the artificial vanilla. This is a mass market experience. And then when you have the opportunity to try a fine chocolate, real fine chocolate, not because it's written on the packaging, but because they are really fine. They are like an excellent good wine, an excellent wine. You have uh, aromas that are unusual, that are complex, that are floral or fruity or woody. Um, They are uh, nutty. They are complex, like listening to a concert uh, of a classical uh, concert with many instruments playing at the same time everyone bringing its contribution and giving you a music in the body that lasts for long and is pleasant. What is the difference, by the way? Why is it that, for example, I can get, uh, I mean, I assume there are are a few factors, but I'm wondering which one is is the sort of most important in in the price differential. You can get a a big bar of Hershey's chocolate for, you know, $2 or something or a dollar. I mean, you you can get a lot of chocolate cheaply or you can go, I'm here in New York City. If you go to a store that some of my listeners might be familiar with called the uh, Maison du Chocolat, you'll think to yourself, okay, this is about as expensive as illegal drugs. <laughs> so <laughs> so why, is, it, is it the fondeur? Is it the way they make the chocolate? Or is it the ingredients, a combination? Why is there this huge price? Just the brand name? What, what's the, di- what's the uh, price differential? What, what causes it? Well, uh, if you go to La Maison du Chocolat, what you would buy is mainly chocolates with a filling, what we call bonbon chocolat. Uh, but the real chocolate is the chocolate bar. And I would rather go to the meadow in New York if I were there to buy many chocolate bars made uh, following the values of the movement bean to bar, usually with two ingredients and top quality cacao. The difference mainly is like a very good wine and a, a cheap wine is that it will give you a much more complex, intense and long experience and more pleasant. 
if you take a zip of a good wine, you close your eyes and you are taken into something else. You can dream, you have an emotion inside you that invades you. And if you take a mass market chocolate, which is much cheaper, you just have the sugar hit mainly and some cacao atmosphere on the back. And, for, uh, and that's exactly this. You pay for this difference. And this difference is not only the cost of finding a good cacao that has an interesting genetic, that has been properly uh, cultivated, uh, fermented, dried, uh, stored, but also well interpreted by a chocolate maker who knows his job and will not just burn and add some artificial vanilla. So there are many, many people involved in giving you the ultimate pleasure in a chocolate bar. And this has a cost. And if you are going to be a true connoisseur, uh, you're supposed to drink, as I understand it. Now, I, I will not lie. I drink cow milk with my chocolate. <laughs> it's a little, this is, a, this is the, the truth. But you're supposed to drink water with it, right? So it doesn't interfere with the flavors if you're going to really do it right. Absolutely. You organized well your interview. <laughs> it is uh, the best uh, drink to go with uh, chocolate is to clean the palate, which is water, something neutral. And I even take warm water because the warm water uh, will uh, dilute the cocoa butter that sometimes sticks to your palate. And if you want to taste many chocolates, uh, you need to clean the effect of one before you experience the effect of the second one. Chloe Dutre-Roussel, uh, author of the book, The Chocolate Connoisseur, for everyone with a passion for chocolate. You can learn more about Chloe at uh, com. Chloe, thank you so much for joining us. It's fascinating. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Merry Chocolate Christmas. Merry Chocolate Christmas to you, too. Um, chocolate. It's delicious. I love it. Uh, I'm pretty sure I, I, I didn't get her name right, even with my many years of French, but that was awesome. She, I wanna, she should narrate her own book. The French accent makes me just want to buy expensive chocolate. I'm like, let's do this. And by the way, if, if I don't know how many of you have had this experience, but there are some of these little sort of uh, art, artisan chocolate shops you can go into, and you, you're like, oh, I'll get three or four pieces. You know, why not check it out? And you go to the register, and they're like, that will be you know, let me. Legitimately, they can be four or five dollars for a tiny piece of chocolate. So, maybe, maybe you know, five or six, maybe. So, if you get a dozen chocolates, they're like it's sixty, seventy dollars. That's that's what you can run at, at some of these places. Yeah, seventy bucks. And when I mean chocolates, I mean like a little bite, like a, a bite. That is it. Not that I've done this or spent that kind of money on chocolate because that would be absurd, right? I mean, it's like at, at that level, you know, if you're not actually getting if you're not actually getting higher, you're getting your money's worth. I'm just kidding. Don't take me literally on that. Um, but yeah, good talk, Buck. Good talk. Chocolate for International Chocolate Covered Day or whatever it is. Put chocolate on anything day. I figured we'd talk about it. I didn't want to ask her about the movie Chocolat because I'm sure she'd be like, Johnny Depp's French is terrible, which it probably is. Uh, 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show. So, team, I don't know if you saw it. There was a pretty incredible segment last night on uh, Tucker Carlson Tonight on Fox News 
where he went up, a, a, he just was asking Kurt Eichenwald, who is a pretty, I guess, reasonably well-known print journalist, where he gets the information that he made an accusation on Twitter about how Donald Trump was institutionalized at one point. And Tucker's just trying to get an answer to that question on his show. And it just turned into a, a, a complete, uh, I, I don't know what you'd call it, on-air melee. Play the clip. I've been reading your stuff for, I mean, 20 years probably. But in the last year, I've noticed an increasing, I think it's fair to say, partisan turn uh, from you. And so I looked up your bio and it describes you as a senior writer at Newsweek, which suggests journalism. Do you believe that you're practicing journalism? <laughs> When did you stop beating your wife? Uh, get, what are you talking about? Well, I'll, I'll show you what I'm talking about. I, I read your Twitter feed, and this is uh, the kind of stuff I'm reading on it. At one point, uh, you ask of conservatives, why do they hate America? You describe Trump as, quote, stupid and lazy. You, you refer to dumbass Trumpers. You say this to Kellyanne Fitzpatrick. F you. You well, say hold, this to hold Trump on voters. Again. Hold Go on F here, yourself. Tucker. I mean, one of the things I want to make mm -hmm. sure of, you that have a real habit of taking a lot of me. things out of context. I can read and the so tweets. And so if you're going to talk about a tweet, let's talk okay. about a tweet. Read me what it says, and we can talk about it. He did but let's read not just sit here and take a couple of words here and there. Now, if you're talking about the... Okay, do you, would you want me to read me some of your tweets? One. Read me one. Let's talk about the one that bothers you the most. Well, I mean, there are a lot. Um, and then some <laughs> yeah, bother me. But I can't, Actually, I can't I think answer you're, a question you're entirely, about a lot you're, of tweets. Give me an answer. You're entirely, Give me a question. Well, you're entirely entitled to your opinion. I, I just, my only point is that you ought to label yourself as what you are, which is an advocate. Oh, by the way, so we played that. I mean, it goes on. If you haven't seen it, I'm assuming, let me see. I'm assuming it's on theblaze.com just because everybody, and th this was a total... It was, yep, <laughs> it's in the carousel, which is like the big photo on theblaze.com. If you haven't seen it, go to theblaze.com and after the show, obviously, because we're busy right now, uh, but watch the whole clip. I mean, Tucker keeps asking this guy and he gets into the whole, can you give me a yes or no answer? And the guy just, he, he, he kind of loses it on it. It's, it's almost, it's almost to the point where it's not amusing. It crosses over into like, he's having some sort of uh an episode or an attack on air, meaning Eichenwald, uh, he just sort of has a meltdown. I've never seen anything like it. And I, I do have to say that this has happened to a number of journalists in the last week. All about It's always about Trump. And they, you know, they'll either tweet something or they'll act in wherever you go. You're a you're a seasoned jur veteran journalist. And this is this is how you think you're supposed to either cover an issue or this is how you act i mean you've got to be kidding me uh, no way i mean I told julia yaffe or whatever from politico wrote about trump and his daughter in a way that I, I mean as i said if you had ever written something like that about obama you would you would never work in media again you'd be done and this guy eichenwald uh, saying that trump was institutionalized and being or tweeting that he was institutionalized which is saying which is writing that he was institutionalized and then having being completely unwilling to provide any sourcing or any backup for that whatsoever on tv and then to act like this is some sort of weird right-wing conspiracy I, I say things sometimes like the left has lost its mind or whatever i mean some people do seem to have had because of the trump election i i really mean this because i'm looking i'm reading evidence and watching evidence of it seem to have had some kind of a, like a psychological break. Like they've, they can't actually process this reality. And there are a few of them now where this has happened. And you think, 
Wow. I mean, we're really early in the game, folks. I mean, Trump isn't even president yet. And people are this freaked out about it. That just seems bizarre to me. Um, and like I said, you should watch this interview. I mean, Tucker does a, does a very good job under the circumstances of what he's dealing with. But there are people on the left who this this is not just a they're really upset. Uh, they are having trouble as people, as adults, processing the information of Trump being president and acting like normal people with that. This is a real thing that is happening now. I'm seeing it happen with numerous journalists. Um, all right, team, we'll be back. Talk about some butter. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. Team, from its humble agrarian origins to present-day artisanal glory, Butter has a fascinating story to tell. And our next guest, Elaine Kozrova, is the perfect person to tell it. With tales about the ancient butter bogs of Ireland, the pleasure dairies of France, and the sacred butter sculptures of Tibet, Kozrova details Butter's role in history, politics, economics, nutrition, and even spirituality and art. In her book, uh, Butter... A rich history. She details all of this and more. We're joined by Elaine Kozrova right now. Elaine, thanks for calling in. Thank you. Glad so I love butter. We just talked about chocolate before. Now we're talking about butter. So we're talking about some of my favorite mm-hmm. things today. Right. Uh, right. Give us a bit of the history because you've actually written a history of butter. Yeah, I've actually written 10 chapters on butter. Um, and it starts at least 9,000 years ago. And then, it, of course, goes all the way up to the present day where we have this kind of artisan butter, butter revival. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot I could cover, but I think we have about seven minutes. <laughs> so, about that, yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, one of the most fascinating things, really, I uncovered in my book, and you mentioned it in the intro, was that butter had this metaphysical life where it was used as a sacred tool in so many early cultures, ancient early cultures, um, such as the Sumerians, the Druids, the Buddhists, the Hindus. You know, they all had these uh, worship rituals that involved the use of butter. And some of them continue today. For instance, Tibetan butter carving is, is a beautiful, gorgeous art that continues today because the Tibetan Buddhists actually need these sculptures. They call them butter uh, turmas, and they need these elaborate sculptures to do their, you know, to do their practice, essentially, because the sculptures um, are made in the image of certain deities, depending on, you know, the intention of the prayer festival. So, you know, that continues today. Uh, A lot of the other ones, like, you know, sprinkling butter on fire and praying to fire gods, you know, we've lost those. But although you could, uh, you know, people could resurrect that if they like. (laughs) What are the ancient butter bogs of Ireland? My Irish heritage wants to know. Yes. Well, so... The early people of Ireland, and we're going back at least a thousand years, uh, made made butter, and they buried it in the bog, which is basically peat, and it's a very acidic, anaerobic medium. So it was great for preserving butter. Uh, you know, they, of course, they didn't have 
but they have a very temperate climate, you know, so it was basically you had to salt butter to death to preserve it, but they were able to bury it in the bog and preserve it. However, we've found, uh, archaeologists have found like almost 450 different samples of bog butter that date back, you know, more than a thousand years up until, you know, a few hundred years ago. And looking at where they found them, they realized that they're on the boundaries of these um, sort of tribal territories. So now the belief is that these butters were put there not just to preserve, but they were left there as a pagan offering to the, you know, the elementals, the fairies, because of course it was much superstition in those days, and particularly even around butter making, there was a lot of superstition. Uh, so, yeah, we're still finding bog butters, and uh, if people want to see what that looks like, they can go to the Irish Museum of Butter in Cork, Ireland, which is one thing that I did in my travels. There's a, there's so, a museum in Ireland dedicated to butter specifically? Yeah, just, just the history of butter, and it's mostly the history in Ireland because it was such an important commodity in that country. It really built the wealth of Ireland, especially in the 17 and 1800s. Really? Yeah. I, I, I was unaware of that. Well, so oh, yeah. why, why was Ireland so big with butter? Well, they, they have a great dairy climate. Their pasture is absolutely spectacular, again, because it's so temperate. Um, they don't have, uh, you know, really hot summers or really um, cold winters. So they have this gorgeous pasture for the cows, and dairying grew, you know, grew to be a strong business in, in Ireland. And, you know, essentially all these little farms would bring their butter to the Cork Butter Exchange, which was set up in the late, let's see, I think it was the late 1700s, early 1800s, around that time. Um, and what the Irish did, which was unusual for any other country, because other countries were making lots of butter, but the Irish set up a system of grading the butter, so you knew if you were, you know, buying, you know, level one, two, three, one all the way up to six, and I think six was like a really nasty butter. Um, but if you're buying the, you know, first level, it, you could be assured it was good, good stuff. And so they developed this reputation for really good butter around the world. And, what are the um, pleasure dairies of France? Yeah, that's a whole uh, other thing that had to do with. Uh, gardening, in a sense, because it was started really by Marie Antoinette. She she created this kind of fashion craze in gardening, where you had an ornamental dairy in your garden, in your elaborate garden, if you were a wealthy person. So you built these what's called pleasure dairies that were uh, quite lavish. You know, they had marble and you know porcelain tools and you know it was very much for the royalty and so it sat there you know as a sort of stage for dairying a very beautiful stage for dairying in making dairy products and and the and the wealthy used to play it making a little butter making a little cheese but they also used those spaces as uh, a place to entertain that was much more casual and intimate and so that's uh, that's how that got started, and it actually spread to other European countries. And yeah. has there been a? It seems to me there's been a shift now. We're talking about the nutritional side of things. Uh, I remember being in in grade school and having these disgusting plates of of this mm-hmm. substance that they called margarine that we were supposed yeah. to use instead of butter because it was healthier. It seems like people have now recognized or come to recognize that in proper quantities, butter is actually fine. It's actually the way to go. 
It's absolutely fine, and it's way better for you than margarine. You know, margarine uh, for decades had trans fats in it. Now we've they've apparently gotten rid of the trans fats, but you know that was that was the worst thing people could have been eating. You know, to to prevent heart disease because trans fats are a known cause of heart disease. So that was that was all wrong. Of course, you know, nobody intended to do the wrong thing, but our science has finally caught up, you know, to to what really is happening in our bodies with heart disease, and it has very little to do with cholesterol levels and saturated fat. And In fact, that the new science is really interesting because it teases apart that category of saturated fat. It's not like they're all the same. There are many different kinds, and they do different things in the body. And one of the things they do is, is raise H, HDLs, which is, you know, so-called good cholesterol. Uh, so... Butter also has things like um, vitamin K2, particularly grass-fed butter, I have to say. The you know, industrial butter, not so much. But that's a really potent like disease protect pre- preventer. Um, and conjugated linoleic acid, that's another really good thing for our bodies. That's also found in butter. How hard is it, by the way, Elaine, if somebody has access to, uh, I don't know if you need access, I guess, to, well, just to milk. How hard is it to make your own butter? Oh, it's super simple. I mean, if anybody has whipped cream too long, they know they've you know they've made butter by accident. So it's actually quite simple. You just need good, pure cream, not cream that has not whipping so-called whipping cream because that has additives to stabilize it. You just want straight up, you know, cream. It should be about sixty degrees, not quite as cold as your refrigerator temperature. Um, so you leave it out a little while. It'd be about 60 degrees. You know, you can put it in a food processor. You can put it in a stand mixer. You can even just put it in a jar um, with a lid and shake it up. The, the only thing that you have to be sure of if you're in a jar or a food processor with the cream is that you have uh, as much headspace. You need air in there because that's important to churning is getting the air in there. But other than that, I mean, you just... Let the machine go or shake it up, and within minutes you'll make you'll make butter. And that's just a question of draining off the the buttermilk because when you make butter, you end up with these nice, you know, morsels of butter surrounded by buttermilk. So you have to separate that. And, gotcha. And that's it. It's actually a really nice little gift for the holidays. You know, people want to do a little homemade gift really quick. Make your own butter and give it to the neighbors. I like it. Yeah. Elaine Kozarova is an award-winning food writer and former pastry chef and and expert on butter. Her book, Butter, A Rich History, is available on Amazon. Elaine, thank you so much for calling. We appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. All right, team. 888-900-3393. Call on those phone lines. It's like butter, baby. Be right back. Buck Sexton, dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show. We've got some calls up on the board. Let's take them. Ashley in Fort Hood, Texas. You're on the Buck Sexton Show. Hey, Buck. Good afternoon. 
Good um, afternoon. I'd like to say congratulations on your uh, finding a good, suitable woman in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Um, but I wanted to ask you about uh, if you see any um, any prominent chances for the impediment of Donald Trump actually taking office on the left. Do you mean you mean like the uh, effort Incredible. to try to get the Electoral College on Monday to not vote for him or something else along those lines? Like a- any yes, of the that tricks that are they're trying to pull to stop Trump from will they work? Is that what you're asking me? Yeah. Do you think that it's actually credible that they will work? Nah, nah, it's it's too much. I mean, there's there's no way. Look, I think part of this, it's important to keep in mind that I always knew that Hillary wasn't going to get criminally charged. Because the people that would have to bring the decision were either uh, too partisan or honestly too scared of what I think the the fallout would be if they did that. If a presidential candidate faced criminal charges over the course of an election for something that's relevant too, I mean, something that's relevant to their holding the office, not like facing criminal charges for, you know, unpaid speeding tickets or something. So uh, that's that was part of, I think, of the calculation and not charging Hillary. I'm not saying that makes it OK or I agree. I'm just saying I think that that was. One of the reasons why James Comey was like, all right, I'll, I'll take this one for the uh, DOJ. I'll take this hit for the DOJ. Um, but no, I don't, I don't believe that any of the sort of plots that are out there right now that are meant to stop Donald Trump from gaining off. I don't, I don't see any of them actually uh, coming to fruition Nothing. and being successful. But I, I, I go ahead. Did you actually, I'm sorry, uh, did you actually, I know you have somewhat of a background with knowing him um, slightly, but do you yeah. actually think that he's going to... Sh- shape up for um, his presidency look even if he he would here's what i will say given that he's got a list of supreme court justices he's going to pick from that list and those justices are conservative justices and that the republicans managed to maintain control in the house and the senate and there's no reason for him to bail on any of the issues that he ran on except for immigration where he is going to face the, a, a wrath of a thousand furies from the media, from the left, from the Democrats, and even from Republicans. Um, but on a lot of the other stuff, uh, he's all, first of all, he's already sort of he's delivered a victory by denying victory to Hillary Clinton. So I think we have to start there, and that's that's where I stand on that. And then also, when you see what the likely trajectory of let's just say the first year or two of his presidency will be, there's going to be a lot of stuff that Republicans, conservatives would want to get behind. I mean, there's a lot of things that are good. So I, I don't think he's going to shape up if you think shape up means he speaks like you're reading from Jefferson's letters or something. And, and he's going to be this, you know, uh, staid and eloquent statesman. But if I if someone's asking me, is he going to do things that are is he going to do some pretty good things from the perspective of honestly the whole country, but also from the from the right? Yeah, I, I think that the answer is yes, he will. Um, are we going to have to defend some buffoonish comments and some mistakes here and there? Sure. Sure, that's going to happen, too. They're just breathing down his neck. They want him to mess up so bad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, they don't just want him to mess up. They're going to try to make him mess up. I think that's an, or, or, or even make it seem like he's messed up much more than he has. So got to keep all of that in mind. Look, he's, you know, if I, I'll tell you this right now. If I had a billion dollars in the bank, I wouldn't run for president. It's not what I would do. So, <laughs> but, you know, I don't have a billion dollars. I've got like a thousand dollars. So I've got a little ways to go. <laughs> But Ashley from Fort Hood, great to talk to you. I have a um, movie quote for you, though. Oh, okay. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay. So I hope it it, uh, 
it's actually an uh, action movie. Um, the quote is, no women, no kids. No women, no kids? Yeah. Wow, that's a short quote. Uh, John buzzed me. What is it? <laughs> it's the professional. Ah, okay. Fair, fair. A good, good movie. I've seen it. Um, Ashley, are you are you on the base Fort Hood, by the way, or are you just in the Fort Hood area? I live right outside the base. I was in the military, so I just moved off post afterwards. Gotcha. I was going to say, well, thank you for your service, Ashley, and thank you very much for calling in. Thank you, Buck. Um, Jim in Minnesota, we got 60 seconds, but I want to get you in before the weekend. Go, go, go. Hey, Buck. Yeah, as far as I uh, really enjoyed your uh, pieces, but uh, as far as especially on chocolate. One of my favorite treats is uh, Dairy Queen uh, chocolate dipped in chocolate. He's like, yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah, just go all in on that chocolate. Oh, yeah, you got that right. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to share, share a story with uh, about my one of my bad experiences with my, a restaurant, but uh, I guess I won't have time for that. Jim, I'm going to ask, can you call us back on Monday and maybe if hour three we'll hit sure. this? All okay, right, cool. Yeah. Rock and roll, man. Have a good weekend. Shield side, Jim. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted to hear it. We had a bad restaurant story, finally. So many action movies. I love action movie quote Friday. Everybody gets fired up for it. I think I did pretty well today. I think I am uh, maintaining my black belt status. Maybe I'm brown belt now, but I never knew. Was red belt higher than brown belt, or it was lower than black belt, right? Black belt was the best, and I'm forgetting for my karate movies. Red looks cooler, I think. Red goes with everything I wear. Team, thank you for joining. Fantastic uh, to have you here. Please share the show. Until Monday, Shields High. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645.